Well, good morning and welcome everyone to another edition of the Hall Call interview series and podcasts. I am Will Driscoll, the executive director here at the Virginia Sports Hall of Fame. And as always, I'm happy to bring you another exciting edition of Hall Call. And before we get started, well, though, we have to welcome everyone to another edition of the Hall Call my, interview uh, series and podcasts. You know, technology is a funny thing. I had the volume up as we were recording as well. But before we get started, I'd like to thank all of our sponsors who help us put on Hall Call and our Hall of Fame events, Priority Automotive, the Beck Foundation, Davcon Inc., Centera Health Plans, White Claw Hard Seltzer, and Priority Auto Sports Radio 94.1. We're able to do Hall Call and our events because of partners like them. Well, you may have heard, but our 2024 induction is fast approaching. As we sit here today, we are just 67 days away from the 2024 induction weekend. And today we are thrilled to be joined by one of the incoming inductees, Jill Ellis, who you see on your screen is a two-time Women's World Cup champion manager with the U.S. Women's National Team. But did you also know she's a national champion at the youth level with the Braddock Road Bluebells? She scored 32 goals and was a third-team All-American with William & Mary Women's Soccer and in 14 seasons as a collegiate head coach with Illinois and UCLA, her teams appeared in eight Final Fours. Add it all up. And we leave no doubt that she's a Virginia Sports Hall of Fame inductee. So, Jill, we know you're busy, but we want to thank you for taking some time to join us today. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. Looking forward to it. Absolutely. So I, I mentioned she's busy. She, you are the team president uh, currently of the San Diego Wave in the NWSL. So we're really looking forward to talking about your entire career up to this point. But before we do that, we do a lot of these hall calls, and we're really fortunate to be able to talk to athletes, coaches, contributors, some of the best of the best in Virginia. And we know that your motivation is not necessarily the accolades, but when you have a when you receive something like this, as well as your induction into the U.S. Soccer Hall of Fame last year, it has to feel pretty good, right? I mean, certainly, it's uh, you know, I always say when you when you get a trophy, it's it's got a lot of lot of fingerprints on it, and I think the same is is true for awards like this, you know, although they're recognizing the the breadth of your career, it's, um, you know, I think just so many different people have been influential and contributed to, to get me to this moment. But yeah, I mean, it, it's a huge honor. And I always think these, you know, moments like this are, are more reflective than anything, because it really kind of, you know, makes you look back on your entirety of your journey. And like I said, all, all the people and all the pieces and you know, I think one of the crazy things is, is we, if we all look back on our lives and we look at those junctures and whether we went left or right and how we end up in this place, I think it's 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 pretty uh, it's pretty interesting to see how you get here. But yeah, I mean, tremendously honored to to be in this class and um, you know very much looking forward to the event in April. Well, we we obviously are looking forward to the event, and you know, your journey is a little bit different than some of our other inductees. You were born in the UK. Uh, you moved to the to Northern Virginia when you were a teenager. And what's been really, really exciting to see, and this is always one of my favorite parts about the induction cycle, is seeing where the support comes from and who your connections are. The Northern Virginia soccer community is going in big time for the induction coming up. So there's going to be a lot of familiar faces for you here in a few months. As I mentioned, you're born in the UK, you moved to Northern Virginia. Where, What role did Northern Virginia play in your development when it comes to soccer as a player and now coach? Well, I think, I, I mean, it was a massive role because it's it certainly, you know, I played just, I'd never played on a formal team when I was uh, growing up in the UK. So when I moved to Northern Virginia, it was a chance to play high school soccer at Robinson in Fairfax County. It was an opportunity to play for a club team like the Braddock Road Bluebells. So it really kind of just gave me a foundation on which first to thrive as a player and fall in love with the game 
you know, I loved it as a fan growing up in England. I loved playing in the backyard with my brother. But when I moved to America, it was the first sort of formal introduction to being on a team, being a part of something. And, you know, I think the, you know, the big part of being in Northern Virginia was it also helped me form friendships that have carried me through uh, the entirety of my of my time here in the U.S., you know, teammates to colleagues to competitors, so much there's such rich history in there um in northern virginia so it was great and obviously my father you know started an academy there with, with soccer academy and it, it also provided not just a home but a, a you know a career for my father there to help support uh his family so you come to northern virginia you just kind of alluded to it you didn't really have an organized opportunities to play organized soccer over in the uk um uh, so what, how were you able to integrate yourself fairly quickly into a national championship side like the Braddock Road Bluebells and a state championship side at Robinson Secondary? Well, where I lived, it was, it was it enabled me to, to be, you know, go to, to Robinson High School um, where my parents, when we first settled, we actually lived um, in a place called Clifton and it was obviously within the Fairfax system. So I was uh, sort of in, in entrenched in going to Robinson but it was there that you know I grew up in in the UK playing field hockey that was kind of my sport I was really good at it uh, and I had no real idea of soccer and and how it would play out I had such familiarity with the sport of field hockey and then I went out for my field hockey team and met some players on that team that were also soccer players so that was really how I first kind of decided oh I'm gonna you know I'm gonna try out for the soccer team I remember going home and telling my mother and she was Again, growing up in the UK, it wasn't really a sport for, for for women and young girls at the time. My mom was a little bit like, you know, okay, we'll see. But went out for the first game and, you know, my mom was yelling at the refs. So I said, she's going to be fine with this. But it, it was really about meeting certain people. Sue, Sue Montaigne Patberg uh, was one of my teammates. Uh, Kathy Walsh was one of my teammates. And they also played, Kathy played on the Braddock Road Bluebells. Megan McCarthy was probably the first friend I made in, mm -hmm. in Northern Virginia. And they convinced me to go out for the Braddock Road Bluebells. And I went for a tryout. And yeah, we had a, we had a really good team and had a great run there in 84 to, to go and win the national championship. And my choice of college was literally asking my teammates, where are you going to school? And <laughs> Megan said, I'm going to William Murray. And I said, okay, I'm going to go there too. I mean, it was, you know, it worked out brilliantly. But now, you know, having a daughter that just went through the process, probably not the best way to, to make that decision but it worked out incredibly well for me. Uh, it's funny. That was my next question. It was going to be what factors led to, to you selecting William and Mary as a student athlete. But I think you just kind of answered that. It was your friend going down there. Well, it was. I mean, I was, you know, recruited by a couple of other schools and, um, you know, listen, we were, no one in my family had gone to university and my father did some, did some homework and talked to local people and asked obviously about William and Mary. And um, again, you know, I think at the time it was, to go and play soccer, but I really felt it was an investment in my education. Uh, so I, I decided to, to go there and, um, yeah, I was really, I was a really shy kid when I moved to the States and I just had this immediate kind of family and connection with my teammates. And so it made that decision to go there very comfortable. Um, but yeah, I mean, listen, I was recruited there and coach John Charles and John Daly were, were in, instrumental in, in having me go. You know, we've been lucky, uh, just we we have good relationships with with the College of William and Mary, and we've been lucky to see how that community rallies around its own firsthand through previous inductions. Uh, it's a very tight knit community, and and they really love William and Mary alumni. Um, but even as an alumni, all these years later, what makes what makes that college so special? 
I think it's the, certainly, I mean, actually my daughter's now a freshman there, believe it or not. So, and she looked at 12 other schools and, and I did not influence her in a way, but um, I think it's just the, it really is the community. It's, it's the, it's the perfect balance. I think between feeling connected to the people there, I think you, you, you're important. It's not a, it's not a massive school where you kind of get lost in the shuffle. I think they, they really allow you to be an individual, but also feel connected to the, to the traditions that, that exist there. So I think it was partly the, the, the education and just the comfort level of being on a campus. And, um, you know, it's just a great fit for me. I, again, I, at the time, I couldn't have imagined going to a school of, you know, 50,000. I was just this really kind of fresh off the boat, shy kid that just really wanted to find a home. And, you know, I think I grew there exponentially because I think William Mary, I've said this many times, I think it helped me not just find my passions, but also find my voice. Um, and, you know, just settled into that community and really didn't know what I was going to major in, but uh, I ended up being an English major. Well, an English major, and you graduate college. You had a very successful career as a student athlete there. 32 goals, three-time All-American, uh, good deep runs in the NCAA tournament with the women's soccer team. But then you get into the corporate world. And coaching is kind of calling you. And your your dad, <laughs> yeah. you, you kind of mentioned that your your dad had uh, a role creating soccer academies up in, uh, up in Northern Virginia, but also on the global level as well. Your brother got into coaching. Was it a foregone conclusion that Jill Ellis was going to get into coaching at some point? I think everybody but me potentially probably knew that. Um, <laughs> I was, I, I literally, I, I, I think because also at, at the time, there was not a whole lot of, you know, females in coaching. Um, April Heinrichs was probably one of the first female coaches in the U.S. And she obviously got the job at the University of Maryland. But yeah, I, I really wasn't drawn to it. Um, I wasn't thinking that it was a career path. I thought it was something I enjoyed, you know, working my dad's camps in the summer and coaching kids, but I never really saw it as a, as a viable opportunity, but yes, to your point, I was in corporate America and just April called one day and offered me a position to, to go and be her second assistant coach. Uh, you know, talked to my parents. One was, one was on the fence. One was cheering me on. You can imagine which was which. And um, I just made this decision. I like to say I kind of chose passion over paycheck because it was six grand a year. Um, you know, had to do a lot of other things to kind of make ends meet. But I just knew within two months of of coaching that this is where I was meant to be. I just I, I loved everything about it. Yeah. In doing some research, I, I would say that I've read that your mom was less than enthused about your decision to go into coaching. <laughs> She yes, she she was in her Scottish brogue. She's like, you know, basically uh, let out an expletive, like, are you kidding me? Um, but she, yes, I mean, uh she, she, you know, she got behind it. I think, I think again, I mean, it was just, you know, we were, you know, my my dad at the time when I was at William Mary made 15 grand a year. We were trying to piece things together. It was it was a struggle. And so to kind of walk away from an opportunity to have a a career and probably someone something with stable income was a bit, uh, you know, was a bit nerve wracking at the time. So you go through the assistant coaching ranks, Maryland, University of Virginia, uh, another Virginia connection for you there. How does the the shy, the shy kid that you described a few questions ago, work her way up to becoming a head coach at the NCAA Division One level? You know, I, I and I, I say share this a lot with with young coaches now getting into it. You know, I did, I do think I. I took my time. I wanted to be prepared. So, you know, I had actually actually turned down a couple of jobs when I was April's assistant initially because I just didn't think I was ready. So I was patient to, I think, learn the craft. 
Um, so I, I think that, you know, preparation gives me confidence. It's always my entire life. Doesn't matter what I'm doing. If I feel prepared for something, it, it, it helps build that. And I just felt ready, you know, when I may finally made the decision to, to go and start the program at the university of Illinois, you know, I'd been April's assistant. I'd learned a lot. She was an incredible mentor. Uh, I was also coaching and, and working with um, youth national teams at the time, trying to get, you know, get uh, more established in terms of just learning more about the game globally. So I just felt I was ready. And I, you know, I almost think that when you, when you step into that role, I often say it's, it's just kind of like an artist, you have to step into the performance. And when you become the head coach, you know, I'd, I'd much rather sit in the corner of the room, but, you know, going out on these road shows with the University of Illinois and meeting an alumni and meeting partners, potential partners, it, it kind of makes you step outside your comfort zone. And I think that's part of why I did it. It was just this um, way of just really stretching myself to, to, to be on comfort. And gradually I sort of settled into it and, um, you know, got, got familiar with it, but, you know, Illinois, again, it was a, it was a program that was, it was starting. So it allowed me to kind of cut my teeth, it allowed me to build and grow as the program grew with them. So 14 seasons, NCAA division one wild amount of success. I mean, just, I, I encourage everybody go look at the win loss record. It's, it's pretty staggering, but you just mentioned that you were also getting involved with the U S national teams at, at different levels at that point what was kind of the driving factor to encourage you to pursue more with the u.s system as opposed to the college system i think it came down to simply following a passion like i loved i loved working with college athletes the day-to-day -day, you know um helping them grow and see them develop and you know start as a freshman and leave as a senior, that was incredibly rewarding. But what I loved about the international game was just, and I, I've said, I like it was intoxicating, was just to see how different the game was played across the world. You know, you go out and you prepare for Germany and then the next day, two days later, you're preparing for Japan and it's so different or you're preparing for Nigeria and just the, just the diversity of the game and the different styles and systems. I think, you know, it scratched my brain and, and really made me, uh, become want to become even more of a student of the game because it was so every time you stepped on the pitch you you were preparing for something different different strengths different weaknesses so I think I love that part about it I also loved I remember you know putting on uh you know the crest the, the U.S. soccer crest and I just had I don't think there's anything always as a youngster growing up in the UK I always wanted to go to the to go to the Olympics and compete for England uh in netball or field hockey, which are my two sports, and wear the three lions on my chest. And so this idea of, you know, by now I was an American citizen and I really wanted to embrace that pride that you have when you're when you're competing or representing your country. There's there's nothing like it. So I think that was really the the genesis between behind getting more involved in the youth landscape at the national team level and then scouting for the senior team. And then by 2008, I was an assistant with uh, Pio Sundhaga with the Olympic team in Beijing and also in 2012 in London. When you're coaching at the D1 level or even at the with a professional team, you, you have your players. You, you have them day to day. You can you can implement your system, um, you know, rinse and repeat consistently. What must a national team manager do to experience success? Like, what are some of the big challenges that you face? Because you only get these players for a very limited amount of time. Yeah, it's a great question. I'm glad you raised that because, it, you know, essentially it's, it's getting an all-star team together yeah. um, and having to have limited time with them and then prepare them for, you know, arguably some of the most competitive arenas you can compete in, World Cups and Olympics. Um, so I think the, 
the challenge was uh, it, certainly you have to be prepared tactically. You have to have the the right um, nuances on the pitch. But so much of it is also managing personnel. It's managing a team of twenty three all stars, all of whom could play, you know, and start for every team probably in the world at the time. So I think it was. It's not just the getting them ready for on the pitch. It's also how you manage people as play, as, as as individuals. I always I always like to say, you know, you have to you coach the team, but you manage the individual. You have to build those connections and relationships. You have to, um, you know, build a team that understands that it is the sum of it that's more important than the individual. You know, how do you create that culture? I mean, these are some of the things that you just kind of build into when you're coaching a national team. Um, you have to navigate and listen I, I think part of it is I've always tried to you know I think probably my players would say I'm direct but I've always tried to lead with I like to say truthfulness and empathy I'm always very upfront you know here's how I see it here's you know um, the situation or here's the why but also understanding that your you know your words do have an impact so can you deliver them with a with an empathy that you know shows that you also care and and you're not and you can't make people happy all the time. I remember like my, my dad when I first got into coaching was just no, always fifty percent are with you and fifty percent against you. But that's the reality of coaching because every day you're picking a person over another person, and it's it's a very unique environment to to step into. Well, you, you take over full time in 2014, and and while the U.S. hadn't won the World Cup since '99, there's still a, a massive power in the women's international game. So going into 2015. You breeze. I wouldn't say you breeze through, but you you get to the final, and you're up four nil within 16 minutes. At that Same. point, you have 75 <laughs> minutes to go in the match. What's going through your mind, and just making sure the players see it through at that point? Four nil in 16 minutes in the final. Yeah, you know, and it was interesting. In the, in that World Cup, we we went through group stage and, you know, we weren't, we weren't playing our best soccer. We weren't blowing teams out. We were kind of just, and I kept saying to the team, you know, cause you obviously have to shape the narrative. I kept saying, listen, we don't want to play our best games in the beginning. We want to, we want to grow. We want to go from, from warm to hot, you know, type thing. And you're saying this to the media, et cetera, et cetera. But I think actually the catalyst for, for the ninth, for the, the final was in the semifinal, we played Germany, a huge power and everything just clicked for us. We were prepared. We played well, um, got a massive result. And I think that just kind of buoyed us into the into the final. But yeah, listen, to be up to be up two nil in the first 16 minutes is insane. But four nil, it was um, yeah, it was kind of the, one of those pinch me moments. But having having played Japan enough in, in my career played against them you just knew that no lead was was safe because they had a lot of the ball and when you have a lot of the ball you have a lot of opportunities that you can create so um I remember at halftime you know just walking in there and saying what's the score and my my team my team knew so well and they would say zero zero because they they knew what to say because they knew that regardless of the score in the first half you have to start the start the game tied um zero zero and you have to go earn the second half so Listen, they got two back and then finally we pushed to five, but it was just kind of reminding them that we hadn't, you know, hadn't gotten anything until this thing was over. And that was kind of a redemption moment for the the U.S. women's team, having lost in the final to Japan in 2011. So then you fast forward to 2019, you're the defending champs again. It seemed, though, in watching those matches, the overall quality of the women's game had taken a massive leap forward. Did you experience that yeah. as, a, as a manager on the pitch during the 2019 World Cup? I mean, for sure. The level, I mean, first of all, the, the, the you know, the, the gaps were closing, um, meaning, you know, the, the teams that were debutantes were, were doing, 
we're doing more competitive. Um, you know, I, I certainly, you know, Spain was not the power it was in 15 that it became in 19. And now you see, you know, in 23, they go on to win. So the rest of the world was, I think you had a higher level of coaching, which made teams way more organized uh, defensively, way more creative in their tactical, um, you know, uh, effectiveness that it, it certainly was, it was on us to be a lot more prepared in, in tactical. We were a lot more tactically um, fluid. I mean, we, we could make adjustments. We certainly went through a bit of a rebuild in 17 where I went and looked for different players, different profiles of players. And so it was really going into 19. We knew, we knew we had our work cut out and to play, listen, to play France, who are arguably one of the best teams in the world and they're the home team and play them in the quarterfinals was a huge task. But I think going in our build up to 19, the preparation, I, I credit the players and my staff, we were we were well schooled in, in what to do. Every situation, every scenario, there really wasn't anything left to chance. So whether you're behind or ahead, you know, how do you close out a game? How do you force a goal? Are you prepared to go to penalty kicks? I think we were just really and I think, again, I think that strengthened the players in terms of just being being ready to step onto that world stage. And it may have looked easy as we marched through the tournament, but yeah, there were some really tight games and some really big challenges in that in that match, in those matches. Well, you obviously need talent to win back-to-back World Cups, but there are things that fans can't see, the intangibles. What intangibles did those two sides, 2015 and 2019, possess that contributed that contributed to the the overall success? Well, I, I think in, you know, in 15, it was, it was, I mean, I had this player, Abby Wambach and Abby played, she was a, an iconic player, FIFA world player of the year. But when I, when I took Abby onto the team, she was the first player I named the roster. And I took Abby because of her incredible presence, leadership, um, you know, just the gravitas that she carried. And so I think we had a really veteran crew with Abby and Christy Pierce as our, as our leaders in that. And, and there's this, it was almost desperation to win. As you said, it had been so long. Um, I think 2019, we, and in 2014, when I took over, it was, you know, you had about a six to nine month run up to the World Cup. So you had to, you couldn't really change a whole lot. You had a pretty set pool of players. So it was like, how do we maximize what we have? I think 2019, it was, it was more of, here's where, here's the game was going to look like in 2019. How do we build towards that? How do we, what kind of players do we need? So a Rose Lavelle, a Sammy Mewis, a Lindsay Horan, these players were, weren't on our 2015 roster, but we knew we needed to evolve and diversify in our profile. So I, listen, I always think championship teams are a balance of uh, incredible experience. And, and we had that, you know, Megan Rapino, Tobin Heath, Carly Lloyd, Alex Morgan. And then we also had this influx of new energy um, and new players that I think made us kind of the perfect the perfect synergy of, of experience and youth. We'll get you out of here on this last question. As I mentioned earlier, you are the current team president for the San Diego wave in NWSL. Um, it's kind of a new challenge for you as, as an executive on, on that level at the professional level, but what excites you most about the present of the global game, but also the future of women's soccer nationally and internationally? Well, I, I got into it because I, I really one, one, I wanted to stay connected to what I love, but I definitely think in the club world, we had strides to make and you can see it now. I mean, you can see over in Spain and France and England, the, the domestic leagues are, you know, you're getting 
thousands of, you know, 50,000 show up for games. So you see that across the world, this is the global sport. Domestically, what we see here is we've gone from, you know, 10 teams to 12 teams. The next year, this year, sorry, we're going to be at 14 teams. You see the growth, you see the sustainability. And now, even in the level of investment, you know, with ownership that, You've got, you know, owners of the Giants are now invested in this league, the Vikings, the Cubs. Uh, you're just seeing a whole nother level of, um, you know, my, the owner I work for myself, you know, he was owner of the Penguins. You're seeing people that truly believe in this, um, I say this product, but truly believe in what it can be as a, not just a, a sport, but also as a business. I think the, you know, players can now make salaries that are going to not have to have them have extra jobs. And so you're seeing just the viability of, of what is women's soccer. And I think, listen, I think right now we're, I don't say not even a crest of a wave. We're kind of in this tsunami of women's sports. We see it in women's basketball. So I, I just think the future is incredibly bright. I truly believe that you, it'll, it will come a time where people don't care about the gender. They care about the excellence and the quality of what's on the pitch, what's in the pool, what's on the court. Um, because I think that's what people are drawn to in terms of finding heroes and something to cheer for. Yeah, people, sports fans in particular, we're drawn to greatness. And uh, and if, if there's something great out there, we'll find it. And so exactly. speaking of great, you're, you're, uh, we're looking forward to celebrating you along with the, the rest of the class of 2024 this coming April. And so we know you're busy, but I do want to thank you again for taking some time to join us today, Jill. My pleasure. I've really enjoyed it and look forward to meeting in person. Absolutely. Yeah, we'll see you in 67 days. So I'd like to thank Perfect. everyone who's going to watch and follow along with this or listen to it in podcast form. Of course, thank you to our sponsors who help with Hall Call and all of our Hall of Fame events. Be sure to stay up to date on all things Virginia Sports Hall of Fame and the Hall Call interview series by following us on social media, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, LinkedIn, and YouTube. You can also listen to the Hall Call podcast on Spotify, Apple, and SoundCloud. Join us Tuesday, February 27th for the next Hall Call, where we'll talk to 2024 Distinguished Virginian Award recipient Rick Jeffrey from the Special Olympics. So lots of things happening at the Hall of Fame, but again, 67 days to the induction. Once again, I'm Will Driscoll with the Virginia Sports Hall of Fame. Whatever you do, participate, don't spectate, and we'll see you next time.